Hello and welcome back to Eric Likes Animals. I'm Eric Mahan. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys are ready for a great episode ahead of you. I know I am. Today we're going to be talking about dairy cows asking for the non-smoking section, trying to bring back food forests, and the Van Gogh of sharks, and of course, our featured species. So let's get started with some environmental news. Wildfires are a naturally occurring important thing for wildlife, but in more recent years, the size, frequency, and intensity of forest fires have gone way past normal. The frequency of these forest fires have caused many environmental and human health problems. And now we can add one more group to this list, the dairy cow. So scientists decided to examine the dairy farms found in the western states where forest fires are more prevalent and see if all that smoke is causing any sort of health problems to dairy cattle. You may be asking yourself, how large is the dairy industry over there? And I'll tell you, 25% of our nation's milk actually comes just from this region. And big shocker, all that smoke isn't good. With evidence of many fine particles being found in the lungs due to these fires. I mean, what did you expect with so much smoke in the air? The air quality is pretty much on the level of bowling alley in the 90s. Almost. Some local farmers on the Hawaiian island of Maui are trying to bring back what they refer to as food forest. And yes, I know that sounds like something that should be in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. But food forest actually refers to how they would have a single forest and it would provide many different types of food and even medicine for the people on the island. But unfortunately now, Hawaii has become a major exporter of things like pineapple and sugarcane, which means much of their land has been dedicated to growing just these two things, which, yes, big money can be made for farmers, or most of the time the corporations running those farmers, and the people growing those sugarcane and pineapples will also unfortunately use strong pesticides and fertilizers to ensure their investment and get ultimate crop yields and possibly damage the surrounding area. Because all this land is being used to export farming practices, it leaves very little land left for locals. The majority of the food that is eaten in Hawaii has to be brought in from the mainland or other places around the world which is a major change from historically them being able to just get everything they need right there on the island. So a number of people are trying to start growing these food forests once again with a wide variety of food in a natural way. But they do have to compete and deal with some of these sometimes very large corporations looking to expand their farms and take away potential food forest land. And maybe to help those people running these major farms to understand why they shouldn't be pushing so far because of the human and environmental issues they're causing, maybe they need some help from the Willy Wonka chocolate factory and maybe a little song from the Oompa Loompas themselves. Take it away, boys. Oompa Loompa Doompa Dee Doo I've got another riddle for you Oompa Loompa Doompa Dee Dee Listen or not makes no difference to me What do you get when you cut down all the trees? And then just plant a single type of seed What will you do for dinner now, please? What What do you think will come of that? I don't like the look of that Oompa Loompa Doompa Dee Da 
If you're not greedy, your land will go far. You will have plenty of cheap food too. Just like Oompa Loompa Doopity Doo. Then finally, we need to talk about Brenton the shark. Brenton is a 13-foot great white shark that is part of a research project that tracks shark migrations. So he was caught up and tagged so scientists could watch where he was throughout the year. This is great because we know very little about great white sharks. And this can paint a much better understanding of them because Brenton actually lives just off the East Coast and spends his years swimming up and down it. And don't worry, the chances of you actually running into Breton or other sharks while swimming at the beach is very slim. You are more likely actually to get injured in a car than a shark attack. Something else you probably didn't know about Breton besides swimming off the East Coast is he's somewhat of a famous artist. Because if you look at his years of migration up and down the coast, which has been tracked and actually drawn out on a computer map, he drew a self-portrait of himself. Yes, please do yourself a favor and Google Breton the self-portrait shark and you will see it. Now, don't tell him I said this, but it's not a perfect image. But hey, I would say very much it's fridge-worthy shark picture, at least. And you got to remember, it took him years to do it and hundreds of miles. So yeah, that's pretty impressive. I mean, it still looks better than anything I did as a kid. Or now. And that is your environmental news. So for today's species, I want to tell you guys about an animal I always liked but have truly fell in love with once I started working with them. They are a top predator in their own right and have just such a unique way of life. I know you guys are going to fall in love with them. And the animal I'm talking about is the sand cat. Sandcats are from the deserts of Africa to Asia, stretching across a range from Algeria to as far as Afghanistan and Pakistan, with some scattered ranges in between. They're very isolated populations a lot of the time. They are really the only true 100% desert cat, where many other species might venture into the desert or right to the edge of it. The sandcat calls the actual desert its home, and a very arid, dry, and very little vegetation home it is with temperature swings greater than my mood swings when I'm getting hangry at work, with daytime surface temperatures getting up to 124 degrees Fahrenheit, or 51 degrees Celsius, and then dropping it down as low as possible to 31 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 0.5 degrees Celsius. So you have to be one tough little cookie to live here. So these things must be huge and built strong, right? Well, they are very strong, but the sandcat is a much smaller cat species. They have a body length of about 18 to 22.5 inches, or 45 to 57 centimeters, a tail of 11 to 14 inches, or 28 to 35 centimeters, and the adult cat can weigh a whopping 3 to 7.5 pounds, or 1 to 3.5 kilograms. Sandcats are a small, stocky-looking cat with slightly shorter legs than you would expect. They have big ears and a decent-sized head, especially the males. They have large eyes, and their fur is generally a pale sandy color with some slightly darker markings on their leg and face, along with also having a white belly. And I don't always say the scientific name of the species, mainly because even though I work in the wildlife field, I suck at saying scientific names, and I hate butchering them. But the sandcat has such a fun one, because it is... Phyllis margarita. 
And no, it's not named after the drink, even though a desert cat being named after a drink would be hilarious. They were actually named for the French general that led an expedition that discovered the species in 1858. Also, fun fact, margarita in Latin actually means pearl, so they are our little desert cat pearls. We are not 100% how long they live in the wild, but in captivity, it's about 13 years. Some live longer, but of course, like people, some live a little shorter. But in the wild, we are pretty certain that they would live less because since in the wild, there's no such thing as retirement. When you slow down, you don't eat or you get eaten. And what do these cats eat, you might ask? Well, anything that can move. They are desert animals, which means it does not pay to be picky. In fact, you're dead if you are. So sand cats will hunt small rodents, hares, birds, spiders, insects, and reptiles, which includes the venomous snakes. And you may ask yourself, how do they catch such a dangerous prey? Very carefully. They will sneak up on the snake and smack it on the back of its head, knocking it out and then consuming it. And in this corner, we have the danger noodle of the Arabian Peninsula, packing enough venom to kill even on a slow day two people with a single bite with more venom to spare. It's the Indian saw-scaled viper. And in the other corner with big ears and stocky legs and a hunting success rate that beats even the mighty lion, it's the sand cat. These two rivals are getting ready, so let's get ready for nature. And the Indian saw-scaled viper is just sitting there, seeming to enjoy the sunny day. Oh, and the sand cat seems to be sneaking up, but I'm not sure if the viper can even see him. The sand cat is doing, of course, his classic you-can't-see-me move. The sand cat is right behind the viper now, and bam! He whacks him with a paw, and yes, it's a knockout, folks! It's all over! That cat is going to eat good tonight. They are excellent hunters for many reasons. One for the biggest advantage is that it has big ears which are set a little lower on its head for two main reasons. Number one is finding prey. It will actually listen to the sounds of the sand moving, trying to listen for potential prey moving down there in the sand itself. Another feature is unlike African lions that have a lot of tall grass it can use to stalk up onto its prey, a sand cat is living in just a big open sandy habitat, okay? So there's not much to hide behind. So with these short legs and rock-shaped head, their ears actually can push down super low, which gives it kind of a real good grumpy look, but it's all about sinking themselves real close to the desert sands and actually being able to sneak up on animals even in the openness of the North African desert. So you might be shocked with how difficult it is for a sand cat to actually sneak up on prey to find out that the sand cat are considered a deadlier cat than the African lion. So how can a lion get outpaced by something that it would eat for a snack? Okay, so what is going on is, well, the stats sometimes get switched around a little bit, but for the most part, on average, they say that when a lion goes after a prey item, it will catch it about 25% of the time. Whereas sand cats, when it goes after something, it will get it about 60 to 75% of the time. So if you're getting hunted by a sand cat, you're screwed. But 
it does make sense because when finding prey is so difficult out in the Sahara or in any of the deserts the sand cats are found in, you got to be on your top game, okay? You can't make a mistake because you don't know when your next food is going to be coming around. Whereas a lion, they screw up 10 minutes later, probably another zebra is going to be walking by pretty soon. So yeah, makes a little sense why the sand cat is a bit of a perfectionist. Another reason food is so important for sand cats, besides it just being simply food, and I mean, that's pretty great to begin with, they will normally get all their moisture or hydration it needs simply from the food it eats because, well, bugs, mice, and snakes are quite juicy. And just in case you didn't know that, and if you didn't want to know it, too bad. Because they don't really have a lot of water sources out there, so they've developed to be able to actually survive just on the hydration they get from their food items. However, sand cats will drink water normally if it is available. Sand cats that I work with, obviously we give them fresh water because just because an animal can survive that way doesn't mean it wants to. You can survive outside without a coat in freezing temperatures for a little bit, but it doesn't mean you want to do it. So we provide them fresh water. Sand cats are also very smart about how they conserve their water because they are not normally out in the heat of the day because they would become a little raisin cat. They are nocturnal animals spending most of their time during the day hunkered down in little dens that they dig in the sand. But just in case they do have to go out in the heat of the day for whatever reason, they do actually have a very unique ability to help them out. So first off, besides just the heat of the day itself, what do you think is the worst thing an animal has to deal with living in the desert? The hotter than hell sand. I mean, think about it how much it sucks when you go to the beach in the summertime and you have to walk across that blazing hot sand right when you get onto the beach and you're doing a little jig trying to avoid putting your feet down for too long because it's on fire but of course you're wearing flip-flops and it's just making it worse because now you have fire stand suck between your foot and your flip-flop and now you have no relief until you run to the cool water or the wet sand area and finally can cool down your feet yeah well, guess what? Sand cats basically live in that one giant sandbox of a first level beach sand, which I hate, but unlike for them, they don't have an ocean in sight. So they just got to deal with that one layer of hot as hell sand. So how do they keep their little toe beans from cooking off, you might ask? The answer, sand shoes. Like the people that put little booties on their dog's feet to walk out on the hot asphalt, Sand cats actually have built-in sand shoes. They have fur that actually grows on the bottom of their feet in a way that keeps their little toe beans far away from the baking, blazing, stupidly hot sand. Those sand shoes also come in handy because it actually makes them impossible to track because they no longer leave any footprints in the sand, making them a true ghost cat of the desert. This also makes the potential predators they have to worry about whose job it is to try and find and eat sand cats, a lot harder. Potential predators include venomous snakes, probably seeking revenge on them snacking on their friends, jackals, and large owls. They can sometimes worry about hyenas, but it's not normally a predator regularly it has to deal with, because once again, the desert sections they're found in, there's not a lot of food for large predators. But deal with them, and the problem of the deserts, the sand cats do. And they're built very well, not just to survive, but thrive in the desert. They are smaller cats because there's not a lot of food for them. 
and they have special features that help them survive the heat and lack of humidity. In fact, it's so well that zoological institutions who are breeding them to help out wild populations, since not every country that they are found in are very conservationally minded right now, that the zoological facilities in non-desert areas will actually have to not let them outside if the humidity is too intense. And for some areas, it's always too intense. So they have to have huge HVAC systems to dehumidify the air and keep the inside areas super comfortable for them because they actually could get lung infections because they are so used to not having humidity in the air. Sandcats are also extremely vocal creatures, which I can definitely back up from my own experience. They can meow, growl, hiss, and bark. Yes, and it does sound like a dog. And that barking is normally used for them to find each other in the wild. And the only time a sandcat even wants to see another sandcat, of course, is for breeding. Now, the bark is really important because for the most part, they really don't have a breeding season. And they even can breed multiple times within a year. This is very useful since there's a very good chance that there may not be another sandcat even close by when they're ready to breed. So if you were like a red panda and had less than a day to breed pretty much for the whole year, uh, I don't think the sandcats would last very long on that because it would be pure luck if one happened to be close enough and could rush over in that time period to breed and hopefully everything goes right after that. So it pays to have many options when you might not have a male anywhere near or a female anywhere near. So with breeding, there is normally a lot of chasing from the male and even sometimes the female when she's feeling really <laughs> good about it. And the male will normally grab onto the back of her neck, which many people also freak out about thinking that he's trying to eat her. But in fact, he's being a gentleman. The male is only there for the act and then back into the desert he goes feeling pretty proud of himself and thinking he is truly amazing, leaving the female by herself. Gestation of sandcats is about 59 to 67 days, and they will give birth to one to eight kittens, which is just a shit ton of kittens when you think about them living in a place that's very hard to find food. But luckily for those kittens, mom is a pro. Also, luckily for her, she doesn't have to deal with her kids for very long because Kittens are pretty much independent in only six to eight months and sexually mature in only 14. So out they go. With possible huge litters and quick turnaround on how quickly they can mature, what is the conservation status, you may ask, on the sandcats then? Well, the IUCN Red List has them listed as least concern, but it should be noted not many actually put much stock into this, including the IUCN Red List themselves simply because they know the population is out there, but have not enough information to change it one way or another. Don't forget, they are very hard to track, along with the problems of sparse populations across many different countries, some very difficult to study in. It's difficult to figure out how many there are. And they are also not really an animal that wants anything to do with people, truly making them the ghost of the desert. Many feel, however, they are under major threats with major habitat loss. Yes, even the desert is losing space out there to human. And in addition, domesticated dogs, snares trying to kill them because farmers are fearing for their poultry, and yep, them living in very active war zones sure hasn't helped them out very much. But 
I want to talk about one that is really troubling, which is them being captured and sold as pets, because it's for a very stupid reason. Okay, so right off the back, you will probably go look at a picture if you don't know what a sand cat looks like already, and you didn't trust my description at the beginning, and some of you will think right away, I want one as a pet. Let me tell you, no, you don't. I love them, don't get me wrong, but a huge difference between having them in a certified zoological setting with trained professionals and having one in your house is like you putting on a Band-Aid on your knee and calling yourself a doctor. Yes, they do look a lot like house cats, and that's because house cats' domestication started in the same region as sand cats are found. So it makes sense they look very similar since both of them came from the same area and had to evolve with the same struggles. But the big difference between a sand cat and your house cat is domestication. You cannot put something inside and be domesticated. That's not how it works. Domestication is normally done over thousands of years where we take traits like we like and breed only those animals with those traits so we can create a population with just those traits. Let me explain. People did it to dogs like pugs, where they would keep pairing up dogs with shorter noses and kept doing it over and over and over again until each time it got shorter and shorter noses. We also did this with behaviors. We had a whole group of dogs. These were nice dogs. These were a-hole dogs. We bred the nice dogs, and we kept doing it and doing it and doing it until we got calmer, nicer dogs and animals that wanted to be with people. And that's how domestication happened. Also, domestication cannot happen probably within your lifetime. I mean, we started domestication of house cats about 12,000 years ago, and they can still be wild assholes, okay? Which also sort of fun sidebar here is that there's a difference in opinion on if we really domesticated house cats or they domesticated us. Since looking back, it seemed to be that the cats were the ones that came into the city and were the initial ones to start building relationships with us. So that's probably why they act like they're still in charge. So it's just not worth it with sand cats. They will do poorly in your house. You will be stressed. The sand cat will be stressed. Your house will have nothing nice and it will smell like pee everywhere. Especially since most of the time people say, oh, I want a sand cat because it looks like a house cat. No, just get a house cat. It's way easier, way nicer. And also they're not taking animals out from the wild just to be somebody's pet especially when that act is possibly leading to the extinction of this species. And we want to keep our species around for years to come, like our good friend, the Santa. And that's our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the Sandcat, an amazing cat I'm lucky enough to work with. As always, make sure to check me out on Facebook and Twitter. Links will be provided in the episode description below. And if you don't do the social media thing and want to reach out for whatever reason, you can always email me at ericlikesanimals at gmail.com. So that's all I got for you guys. Thanks once again for listening. And remember, don't be a dick. Just get a normal cat. See ya. <laughs>